Welcome to Frig Friday, featuring Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lovren's Daughter, read by Michelle Hammond, sponsored by Gal's Guide. Kristen Lovren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset Winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature Book One The Wreath Part Two The Wreath Chapter One Early one Sunday morning at the end of April, Osmond Bjorgelsen's church boat glided past the point on the island of Hovdu as the bells rang in the cloister church, and the bells of the town chimed their reply out across the bay sounding louder than fainter as the wind carried the notes. The sky was clear and pale blue, with light fluted clouds drifting across it, and the sun was glinting relentlessly on the rippling water. It seemed quite spring-like along the shore. The fields were almost bare of snow, and there were bluish shadows and a yellowish sheen on the leafy thickets, but snow was visible in the spruce forest atop the ridges framing the settlements of Acker, and to the west, on the distant blue mountains beyond the fjord, many streaks of white still gleamed. Kristen was standing in the bow of the boat with her father and Girid, Osmond's wife. She turned her gaze toward the town, with all of its light-colored churches and stone buildings rising up above the multitudes of grayish-brown wooden houses and the bare crowns of the trees. The wind ruffled the edges of her cloak and tousled her hair beneath her hood. They had let the livestock out to pasture at Skog the day before, and Kristen had suddenly felt such a homesickness for Jurengard. It would be a long time before they could let out the cattle back home. She felt a tender and sympathetic longing for the winter-gaunt cattle in the dark stalls. They would have to wait and endure for many days yet. She missed everyone so. Her mother, Ulfhild, who had slept in her arms every night for all these years. Little Romborg. She longed for all the people back home and for the horses and dogs, for Cordelin, whom Ulfield would take care of while she was gone, and for her father's hawks sitting on their perches with hoods over their heads. Next to them hung the gloves made of horsehide, which had to be worn when handling them, and the ivory sticks used to scratch them. All of the terrible events of the winter now seemed so far away, and she only remembered her home as it had been before. They had also told her that no one in the village thought ill of her, nor did Sarah Eirik. He was angry and aggrieved by what Bentine had done. Bentine had escaped from Hamar, and it was said that he had run off to Sweden, so things had not been as unpleasant between her family and the people of the neighboring farm as Kristen had feared. On their way south they had stayed at Simon's home, and she had met his mother and siblings. Sir Andres was still in Sweden. She had not felt at ease there, and her dislike of the family at Defren was all the greater because she knew of no reasonable explanation for it. During the entire journey she had told herself that they had no reason to be haughty or to consider themselves better than her ancestors. No one had ever heard of Rydar Dara, the birchleg, until King Svera found the widow of the baron at Defren for him to wed, but they turned out not to be haughty at all, and Simon even spoke of his ancestor one evening. I have now found out for certain that he was supposed to have been a comb-maker, 
So you will truly be joining a royal lineage, Kristen, he said. Guard your tongue, my boy, said his mother, but they all laughed. Kristen felt so oddly distressed when she thought of her father. He laughed a great deal whenever Simon gave him the least reason to do so. The thought occurred to her that perhaps her father would have liked to laugh more often in his life, but she didn't like it that he was so fond of Simon. During Easter, they were all at Skog. Kristen noticed that her uncle Osmond was a stern master toward his tenants and servants. She met a few people who asked after her mother and who spoke affectionately of Lavrin's. They had enjoyed better days when he was living there. Osmond's mother, who was Lavrin's stepmother, lived on the farm in her own house. She was not particularly old, but she was sickly and feeble. Lavrin seldom spoke of her at home. Once, when Kristen asked her father whether he had had a quarrelsome stepmother, he had replied, She has never done much for me, good or bad. Kristen reached for her father's hand, and he squeezed hers in return. I know you'll be happy with the worthy sisters, my daughter. There you'll have other things to think about than yearning for us back home. They sailed so close to the town that the smell of tar and salt fish drifted out to them from the docks. Girid pointed out the churches and farms and roads that stretched upward from the water's edge. Kristen recognized nothing from the last time she had been there except for the ponderous towers of Halvard's Cathedral. They sailed west around the entire town and then put in at the nun's dock. Kristen walked between her father and her uncle past a cluster of warehouses and then reached the road, which led uphill past the fields. Girid followed after them, escorted by Simon. The servants stay behind to help several men from the cloister load the trunks onto a cart. The convent Nonacetter and all of Lyran lay inside the town's boundaries, but there were only a few houses clustered here and there along the road. The larks were chirping overhead in the pale blue sky, and tiny yellow Michaelmas daisies teemed on the sallow dirt hills, but along the fences the roots of the grass were green. As they went through the gate and entered the colonnade, all the nuns came walking toward them in a procession from church, with music and song streaming after them from the open doorway. Kristen stared uneasily at the many black-clad women with white wimples framing their faces. She sank into a curtsy, and the men bowed with their hats pressed to their chests. Following the nuns came a group of young maidens, some of them were children, wearing dresses of undyed homespun, with black and white belts made of twisted cord around their waists. Their hair was pulled back from their faces and braided tightly with the same kind of black and white cord. Kristen unconsciously put on a haughty expression for the young maidens because she felt shy and she was afraid that they would think she looked unrefined and foolish. The convent was so magnificent that she was completely overwhelmed. All of the buildings surrounding the inner courtyard were made of gray stone. On the north side, the long wall of the church loomed above the other buildings. It had a two-tiered roof and a tower at the west end. The surface of the courtyard was paved with flagstones, and the entire area was enclosed by a covered arcade supported by stately pillars. In the center of the square stood a stone statue of Mater Misericordiae, spreading her cloak over a group of kneeling people. A lay sister came forward and asked them to follow her to the parlatory, the abbess's reception room. Abbess Groa Guttorm's daughter was a tall, stout old woman. She would have been good-looking if she hadn't had so many stubbly hairs around her mouth. Her voice was deep and made her sound like a man, 
but she had a pleasant manner, and she reminded Lavrens that she had known his parents, and then asked after his wife and their other children. At last she turned kindly to Kristen. I have heard good things of you, and you seem to be clever and well brought up, so I do not think you will give us any reason for displeasure. I have heard that you are promised to that noble and good man, Simon Andresen, who I see before me. We think it wise of your father and your betrothed to send you here to the Virgin Mary's house for a time, so that you can learn to obey and to serve before you are charged with giving orders and commands. I want to impress on you now that you should learn to find joy in prayer and in the divine services, so that in all your actions you will be in the habit of remembering your Creator, the Lord's gentle mother, and all the saints who have given us the best examples of strength, rectitude, fidelity, and all the virtues that you ought to demonstrate if you are to manage property and servants and raise children. You will also learn in this house that one must pay close attention to time, because here each hour has a specific purpose and chore. Many young maidens and wives are much too fond of lying in bed late in the morning and of lingering at the table in the evening, carrying on useless conversation. But you do not look as if you were that kind. Yet you can learn a great deal from this year that will benefit you both here and in that other home. Kristen curtsied and kissed her hand. Then Fru Groa told Kristen to follow an exceptionally fat old nun whom she called Sister Potentia over to the nun's refectory. She invited the men and Fru Girid to dine with her in a different room. The refectory was a beautiful hall. It had a stone floor and arched windows with glass panes. The doorway led into another room, and Kristen could see that this room, too, must have glass window panes, because the sun was shining inside. The sisters had already sat down and were waiting for the food. The older nuns were sitting on a stone bench covered with cushions along the wall under the windows. The younger sisters and the bareheaded maidens wearing light homespun dresses sat on a wooden bench in front of the table. Tables had also been set in the adjoining room, which was intended for the most distinguished of the Corodians and the lay servants. There were several old men among them. These people did not wear cloister garb, but they did wear dark and dignified attire. Sister Potentia showed Kristen to a place on the outer bench while she herself went over to a seat near the abbess's place of honor at the head of the table, which would remain empty today. Everyone rose, both in the main hall and in the adjoining room, as the sisters said the blessing. Then a young pretty nun came forward and stepped up to a lectern which had been placed in the doorway between the rooms, and while two of the lay sisters in the main hall and two of the youngest nuns in the other room brought in the food and drink, the nun read in a loud and lovely voice, without pausing or hesitating at a single word, the story of St. Theodora and St. Didymus. From the very first moment, Kristen thought most about showing good table manners, for she noticed that all the sisters and young maidens had such elegant comportment and ate so properly as if they were at the most magnificent banquet. There was an abundance of the best food and drink, but everyone took only modest portions, using only the tips of their fingers to help themselves from the platters. No one spilled any soup on the tablecloth or on their clothes, and everyone cut up the meat into such tiny pieces that they hardly sullied their lips. They ate so carefully that not a sound could be heard. Kristen was sweating with fear that she wouldn't be able to act as refined as the others. She also felt uncomfortable in her brightly colored attire among all the women dressed in black and white. She imagined that they were all staring at her. 
Then, as she was about to eat a piece of fatty mutton breast and was holding it with two fingers pressed against the bone while in her right hand she held the knife, trying to cut it easily and neatly, the whole thing slipped away from her. The bread and the meat leaped onto the tablecloth as the knife fell with a clatter to the floor. The sound was deafening in that quiet room. Kristen blushed red as blood and was about to bend down to pick up the knife, but a lay sister wearing sandals came over soundlessly and gathered up the things. But Kristen could eat nothing more. She also noticed that she had cut her finger, and she was afraid of bleeding on the tablecloth, so she sat there with her hand wrapped up in a fold of her dress, thinking that now she was making spots on the lovely light blue gown that she had been given for her journey to Oslo, and she didn't dare raise her eyes from her lap. After a while, she started to listen more closely to what the nun was reading. When the chieftain could not sway the maiden Theodora's steadfast will, she would neither make sacrifices to false gods nor let herself be married, he ordered her to be taken to a brothel. Furthermore, he exhorted her along the way to think of her freeborn ancestors and her honorable parents, upon whom an everlasting shame would now fall and he promised that she would be allowed to live in peace and remain a maiden if she would agree to serve a pagan goddess whom they called Diana. Theodora replied, unafraid, Chastity is like a lamp, but love for God is the flame. If I were to serve the devilwoman whom you call Diana, then my chastity would be worth no more than a rusty lamp without fire or oil. You call me freeborn, but we are all born thralls, since our first parents sold us to the devil. Christ has redeemed me, and I am obliged to serve him, so I cannot marry his enemies. He will protect his dove, but if he would cause you to break my body, which is the temple of his Holy Spirit, then it shall not be reckoned to my shame as long as I do not consent to betray his property in enemy hands. Kristen's heart began to pound because this reminded her in a certain way of her encounter with Bentine. It struck her that perhaps this was her sin, that she had not for a moment thought of God or prayed for his help. Then Sister Cecilia read about St. Didymus. He was a Christian knight, but he had kept his Christianity secret from all except a few friends. He went to the house where the maiden was confined. He gave money to the woman who owned the house and then he was allowed to go to Theodora. She fled to a corner like a frightened rabbit, but Didymus greeted her as a sister and the bride of his lord, and said that he had come to save her. Then he talked to her for a while, saying, Shouldn't a brother risk his own life for his sister's honor? And finally she did as he asked. She exchanged clothes with him, and allowed herself to be strapped into his coat of mail. He pulled the helmet down over her eyes and drew the cape closed under her chin, and then he told her to go out with her face hidden like a youth who was ashamed to be in such a place. Kristen thought about Arna and had the greatest difficulty in holding back her sobs. She stared straight ahead with tear-filled eyes as the nun read the end of the story. How Didymus was led off to the gallows, and Theodora came rushing down from the mountains, threw herself at the executioner's feet, and begged to be allowed to die in his place. Then those two pious people argued about who would be the first to win the crown, and they were both beheaded on the same day. It was the 28th day of April, in the year A.D. 304, in Antioch, as St. Ambrosius has written of it. When they rose from the table, 
Sister Potentia came over and patted Kristen kindly on the cheek. Yes, I can imagine that you are longing for your mother. Then Kristen's tears began to fall. But the nun pretended not to notice, and she led Kristen to the dormitory where she was going to live. It was in one of the stone buildings along the colonnade, a beautiful room with glass window panes and an enormous fireplace at the far end. Along one wall stood six beds, and along the other were all of the maiden's chests. Kristen wished she would be allowed to sleep with one of the little girls, but Sister Potentia called to a plump, fair-haired, fully-grown maiden. This is Ingebjörg Philippus' daughter, who will be your bedmate. The two of you should get acquainted. And then she left. Ingebjörg took Kristen's hand and at once began to talk. She was not very tall and much too fat, especially in her face. Her eyes were tiny because her cheeks were so fat, but her complexion was pure, pink and white, and her hair was yellow like gold and so curly that her thick braids twisted and turned like ropes, and little locks were constantly slipping out from under her headband. She immediately began asking Kristen about all sorts of things but never waited for an answer. Instead, she talked about herself and reeled off all her ancestors and all the branches. They were grand and enormously wealthy people. Ingebjörg was also betrothed to a rich and powerful man, Einar Einarsson of Agonis, but he was much too old and had twice been widowed. It was her greatest sorrow, she said, but Kristen couldn't see that she was taking it particularly hard. Then Ingebjörg talked a little about Simon Dara. It was strange how carefully she had studied him during that brief moment when they passed each other in the arcade. Then Ingebjörg wanted to look in Kristen's chest, but first she opened her own and showed Kristen all her gowns. As they were rummaging in the chests, Sister Cecilia came in. She reproached them and told them that was not a proper activity on a Sunday, and then Kristen felt downhearted again. She had never been reprimanded by anyone except her own mother, and it felt odd to be scolded by strangers. Ingebjörg was completely unperturbed. That night, after they had gone to bed, Ingebjörg lay there talking, right up until Kristen fell asleep. Two elderly lay sisters slept in a corner of the room. They were supposed to see to it that the maidens did not remove their shifts at night, for it was against the rules for the girls to undress completely and that they got up in time for matins at the church. But otherwise, they didn't concern themselves with keeping order in the dormitory, and they pretended not to notice when the maidens lay in bed talking or eating treats that they had hidden in their chests. When Kristen awoke the next morning, Ingebjörg was already in the middle of a long story, and Kristen wondered whether she had been talking all night. <laughs> 